Hey everyone, welcome to Be The Change. My name is Lily Mott, and today I'm going to be talking about how change comes when you recognize who makes your community run. My guest this week is Emily Bach, and she is one of the founders of Stories of Consent, which is an organization working to raise awareness and educate people about how consent looks and feels by sharing personal stories. I am excited to share Emily's story and her work with you. So without further ado, let's get started with this episode featuring Emily Bach. Hi, my name is Emily Bach, um, and I'm a writer, an organizer, a researcher, and a student based in New York City. I am 21 years old, and I've been doing this work for around five or six years now. COVID has slightly messed up my sense of time, but I would, I think, closer to six than five. Um, and I'm here today predominantly to talk about a platform that I co-founded, which is called Stories of Consent and focuses on sharing stories about affirmative consent and interpersonal relationships in order to kind of better educate young people and people that are older than young people as well about the way that consent looks and feels to hopefully embolden a type of like critical and empowered action for survivors and also just for healthy relationships more broadly. That's a great way to get started. And I'm excited to go a little bit deeper into this work that you're doing with Stories of Consent. Can you first tell me a little bit more about what got you started with this work? I know some people have kind of an aha moment that really gets them started with making change. And for others, it's more gradual or just more of a slow burn. What was your experience like to get to this point that you're at now? So I began this work predominantly as a survivor justice organizer. And I started largely because I felt a real lack of community. And I think a lot of survivors experience this around my experiences with sexual violence and figuring out how to heal from them. And I did in some ways have an aha moment. I would say that just for context, a couple of years ago with my Siegel, who's actually also my co-founder on Stories of Consent, we began working on a project that was called Space to Speak, which was a community for survivors of sexual violence. And we did it largely because both of us had experienced this kind of isolation that is very common among survivors and didn't really know what to do with it, particularly in an era before Me Too when these weren't really mainstream conversations we were having. And so it kind of began as like an informal group me chat that we had and eventually grew to a much larger community, which was just like a really beautiful thing to experience. And I think my aha, aha moment kind of came through that when I saw that it is possible for people to create positive and healing communities around this issue and that we actually don't need to be as isolated as we are and there are real ways that young people in particular are organizing to create those communities already and that it is possible to find them even if maybe not in your immediate geographic area. Yeah, that's so interesting. So I'd also love to know more about Stories of Consent and the process to develop this platform. I actually first learned about your work through Maya, and um, I knew a little bit about Space to Speak, but I would love to know more about Stories of Consent. So what has the process looked like to develop the platform, and what is the content like that you're sharing? Just give me kind of an overview of Stories of Consent. 
Absolutely. So I can speak a little bit to how the project came to be and then kind of where we see it going. Um, for context, Maya is a strategist. She works on kind of thinking about how we can educate young people, particularly on issues of environmental justice and feminist issues. And she's really incredible at that. I come to this work as a researcher and a, as a writer. So a lot of the kind of backing of this project, at least theoretically, is really rooted in an understanding of how consent education functions today. So currently, within the US context, at least, a near majority of states offer either abstinence-only education or incredibly reductive definitions of consent within sex education. Um, currently, there are only around 11 states that actually mandate conversations of consent within sex education, which points to a real lack of education among young people. And so that was where our research began. And as we kind of continued to think about how we could form that education, it became clear that there's kind of two pieces to this, right? There's the institutional context, right? How people are learning about this through schools and teachers and curriculum. And I certainly think that that is still a very powerful and important way that young people are learning and something that we're interested in working toward more as well. Um, but we were also thinking about the kind of cultural context of how a lot of us come to understand relationships. And I think for many of us, our understandings of relationships come from friends and family and the stories that we hear about other people. And that's how we build empathy for other people's positions, their boundaries, their understandings of what healthy sex looks like, but it's also how we kind of come to understand our own experiences and our own boundaries. And we were really interested in thinking about how we could broaden that network of cultural education. And so that's where stories of consent began. Currently what we do is we allow people to submit anonymous stories about consent kind of across the US. I think we have stories right now from around eight different countries, which is kind of crazy and cool to think about. Um, and then we share them and we provide educational resources for people that are looking to learn more about consent, maybe within like a more structured, I suppose, framework. So thinking about, you know, a very strict definition of what are the kind of parameters of what consent is, and then thinking also about, okay, what do those parameters look like and how are people interpreting them within the context of our own lives? And so that's currently a little bit of what we're doing. And we're interested, I think, in the future in a couple of things. One, we really believe that these stories are kind of the foundation of how we want to relate to the question of consent, right? We really want to forward this idea that it is really important for us to be able to learn through one another and through our communities and forward this idea kind of in the essence of space to speak that we can and should learn from our communities. But we're also interested in thinking about how we can change the current sex education state of this country. Um, so pursuing educational pathways, pursuing more legislative pathways is something that we're thinking really critically about and figuring out, you know, coalitionally who um, we wanna do that work with and who's already doing that work because this has been a fight that's existed in the US for a very long time. Um, so I suppose in that sense, we're approaching it both from this kind of like cultural understanding, which is where we really consider our base to be, um, but also from this more institutional framing of how even within a classroom setting, we could have more productive and personal and actionable conversations about consent and how to practice it. 
Yeah, so I'm really interested in this side of the platform about stories and people sharing their experiences, especially when those experiences are uncomfortable or difficult to share with others. I think one of the reasons these issues are so difficult to talk about and address is because there's often a stigma placed on these issues by society that makes people feel even more uncomfortable when you're talking about anything that has to do with sex or sexuality or consent, like you're addressing with stories of consent. And as a journalist, I've thought a lot about and I've also learned a lot about ethical coverage of sensitive topics. And I would love to get your thoughts on how people can help to break down the stigma and kind of, I guess, the taboo nature of issues pertaining to sex. What can journalists do and what can the media do, but also what can people do in their everyday lives to help break down those barriers and to make people feel more comfortable when they're sharing their stories? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a super important question and one that I've also thought about. I kind of began as an organizer and also as a student journalist. I worked on my school newspaper for a little while and then I wrote for a little bit here at Columbia as well. Um, and I think this kind of question of how you ethically source stories is also very rooted in the kind of autonomy of individuals and of communities, right? Um, particularly as journalists, we're taught, and I think most journalists really believe that the purpose of sharing stories is to allow other people to speak and to be heard. Um, and so I think there's both this question of, you know, how we collect those stories, how we share those stories, and also of how we create spaces that in which those stories are truly and genuinely listened to. And so I really appreciate that you kind of framed it in both ways. Um, I'll address the first one first in terms of how we can collect these stories ethically. Um, this is admittedly something that we really thought about when we were beginning this project because there is obviously, as both of us know, a very significant stigma that exists around talking about sex. And we really believed kind of from the jump that one, we never wanted to be kind of pushing people to share these stories that weren't ready to share them. Um, but also that within the kind of parameters of the project that we currently have, we wanted to make sure that there was an infrastructure for people to share these stories anonymously. Um, and this is something that varies a little bit in journalism, right? I think there's kind of a different relationship to anonymous stories. And that's probably part of the reason why we did this as more of an activism project than as a journalism project. Um, but we wanted those stories to be shared anonymously so that people felt like they could come forward and contribute to a conversation without feeling like they necessarily needed to have their name at the center of it. Um, and so if you go to our website to submit a story, you'll find that the form there is actually like quite bare compared to most story submission sites more broadly, even like not just within conversations about sex. We ask for a country, we ask for your age, and then you're required to put in a custom password so that you can take down your story at any time. And again, we did that because we really wanted to create an infrastructure where people could share those stories without feeling like they necessarily had to be a public voice in this movement. Um, because there is that kind of risk of backlash sometimes in doing that work. And we wanted to at least do what we could to help protect people from that. And I think that kind of goes into the second question about creating atmospheres where these stories are listened to. Space to Speak gave us a really great foundation in that sense, because 
we were dealing with a topic that is incredibly sensitive, right? This question of sexual violence is one that is really personal and is really painful for a lot of people. And so it was really important to us then and now to think about how we could create communities that are genuinely supportive of one another. And we did that largely through this like incredible and super dynamic and engaged team that were working constantly to attend to like the individual needs of survivors in our community as they came up and also to create events and spaces through programming that were meant to bring people together and to create a real sense of community. And so I think that for us laid this foundation of stories of consent where we were really critically thinking about like how can we create an environment that is like genuinely encouraging of having these conversations, but also where people don't feel like they necessarily have to like throw their name in the center of the mix to be a part of it, right? Um, and so that's part of the reason, again, why we did this as a project instead of as collecting these stories and sharing them through a traditional journalism outlet, because we wanted to have that kind of sense of control and safeguarding of the reception of these stories. And it's something that, you know, we've done through really targeted partnerships with outreach, um, thinking about the types of organizations that are also doing incredible work that we want to bring into this and the types of audiences that they have. Um, and we've also just done through really kind of intentionally, like we respond to any DM that we get for the most part, um, we like really try to say thank you to the people that are coming into this community. And we really try to like keep our DMs open or keep, a, keep our email open or whatever it is for future partnerships. Um, but also just for people to tell us how the project is making them feel. And we adjust based on that feedback to try to make the community as supportive as it can be. Um, but we've been really lucky that a lot of the reception to this project has been really extraordinarily positive, um, which has just been like a crazy blessing. Um, that I think we're still kind of learning how to like sit with. But needless to say, I think a lot of the work of like sharing stories ethically is both based around how you can create an infrastructure for people to share those stories and also create an infrastructure for those stories to be genuinely listened to. And I think a lot of that is really just through like very thoughtful care and making it a point to make sure that the people that you're working with and the way that you're speaking to those people are supportive and are genuinely oriented toward like trying to create a good environment for people to address a very stigmatized topic. Yeah, I think that's so true. And I think it's so important that you chose this platform as a way of telling these stories in a raw form rather than making them journalistic and more formal, because that can lead to people being more uncomfortable with sharing their stories and maybe a little bit more hesitant. But I have one more question for you. Lots of young people, especially high school students and college students, want to create change and want to make a difference, but they may not know how to do that. Do you have any advice for those people who may be listening? Yes, because I was that young person for a long time as well. Um, the first thing I'll say is that I really believe in the kind of local context to organizing work. Um, for a lot of young people, there are on college campuses, if you're interested in sexual violence prevention work specifically, there are chapters of It's On Us or End Rape on Campus, both of which are doing really incredible work in this space. Um, Safe Bay is an organization within high schools that has chapters. And I think that's a great place to start because one, those chapters are generally connected to people in the space that if you wanna do a more specific type of work or if you wanna think about the work differently, that's probably a good way to meet those people that would be doing that work. Um, 
And if there isn't currently a chapter of Safe Bay, It's On Us, or End Rape on Campus at your school, they have a ton of resources for starting those chapters, in which case I think the question becomes more about looking at the people around you and kind of thinking about who is already doing that work, who would be interested in doing that work, and also about what the specific skills of people are that could that you could bring to a kind of organizing team. Um, and so I think specifically on the topic of sexual violence prevention, that's probably the easiest place to start. Um, if you're a young person that is more broadly interested in political organizing in a different context or community organizing is admittedly more where I have my roots, but political organizing more broadly as well. Um, looking at the kind of national organizations that have chapters, I think is a really good model. Um, but also just showing up for your community. There's, I think at most college campuses are kind of enmeshed within a city that has its own needs and they, you know, will kind of pass through as students, but there are people living there that have lived there and will live there after you live there. Um, and I think kind of figuring out, you know, who are the people within a neighborhood that are doing that type of community organizing or what are ways that you can show up for them? Um, and also just within your college campus too, right? Like, do you know the names of your custodians or the people that work at your dining halls? Um, in terms of like addressing the needs of the community, I think a lot of that starts with recognizing who is making a community run and then figuring out what you can do to support them, both, you know, kind of within your time at school and beyond it. I really loved Emily's advice at the end of our conversation because I think this concept of finding out who makes your community run and supporting them is great advice for just being a better human in general. There are people all around us every day who are contributing to our lives and our communities, and it's important for us all to support one another. I think we can all keep Emily's advice in mind every day and in all aspects of our lives to make our communities better because change comes when you recognize who makes your community run. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and you can find Emily on Instagram at Emily J. Bach to get connected with her. You can also find the link to Stories of Consent in the description of this episode. If you want to talk about anything I mentioned, please reach out to me by email at lily at bethechangepodcast.org or on Instagram at bethechangepodcast. Tune in for my next episode, but until then, be the change you wish to see in the world. Bye, guys.